Hey, it's Isabel. While Borderline is on holiday, I'm giving you reruns of some of the more popular episodes of the podcast that you may not have heard if you're new to Borderline. And even if you have, give it a listen because I'm giving you the full uncut conversations. I'm starting today with my chat back in 2020 with Wade Davis, a Canadian-American anthropologist who talked about the American century and where the United States was going. Now, This was done, obviously, before the U.S. presidential election, but actually remains incredibly relevant. This was one of my most popular conversations and one that I've really enjoyed revisiting. So here it is, the full unedited interview with Wade Davis. Good morning. Good morning. So today on the podcast, we have uh, Wade Davis, renowned anthropologist, author of many books, professor at the University of British Columbia and a National Geographic Explorer. That's quite a CV. And actually, I think that's where I want to start. I'm, I'm curious. So you wrote this essay that was an instant hit this summer, The Unraveling of America. And that's a bit of a departure from, from your usual topics. You write a lot about rivers and about indigenous cultures. So what kind of prompted you to explore this? Well, actually, you know, every, I have to say, Isabel, I've written 23 books, and I think every single reviewer has always said, of the latest book, this is quite a departure for Wade Davis. And I'm a storyteller and I write about what intrigues me. And um, uh, the genesis of this article was as quirky and as serendipitous as all, all everything I do and everything most creative people do. You know, I, um, I had a book coming out in, in the spring before COVID hit called Magdalena River of Dreams, which is kind of a biography, almost a love letter to Colombia. And I was all set up for, you know, a, a massive tour and launching it in London and America and, and Canada. I was going to be in seven countries, 30 or 40 presentations all scheduled. And of course, like everybody else's life, it went to the car wash. Um, it turns out one of the only ways authors have really to, to get news out about a new book is to write essays. And so I've been writing sort of essays that have sort of nothing to do with the book, but get the byline of the book into, into circulation and on the advice of the publishers. And that, that's part of the genesis of this. Um, uh, I've been asked to write about COVID since almost the beginning of the, of the crisis. And uh, it is true that everything I write is through a kind of a lens, an anthropological lens, if you will. And I hesitated to write about COVID. Uh, I didn't feel I had anything new to say. And uh, one day I was out kayaking around our little island here. And I, I sort of came to shore and saw a great friend of mine, a physician, a wonderful woman, a brilliant doctor. And I, I sort of blurted out to Trish. I said, you know, Trish, this isn't a story of medicine. It's not a story of morbidity and mortality. It's a, a story of culture. And I went home that night and I, I wrote this long piece and um, I sent it to an old friend of mine, Jan Wenner, who founded Rolling Stone. And Jan really liked it and sent it to his son, Gus, who now runs the, the empire, if you will. And um, I ran into the hands of an incredibly brilliant young editor. We honed it down and focused it and shortened it. And it came out and I had no expectation. I wasn't paid for it. I, I just did it on, you know, on spec. And uh, uh, suddenly it just hit a nerve to the extent that the story in a way has become a story. You know, it's now in its fifth week trending on the top two or three slots on their entire website. It's been read by five million people at the Rolling Stone site. Uh, worldwide, it's had 332 million social media impressions. And it's naturally sort of prompted a a tsunami of, of, of uh, comments and uh, emails to me. Uh, and they tend to come into two categories. You know, one are those sympathetic to the fundamental ideas of the piece uh, for whom they just, it's just a very sad tale of the potential demise of America. And of course, the other side um, are, are because, launched into a kind of bizarrely vitriolic and vicious and violent condemnation, not of the arguments, uh, but rather of the person who wrote the article, which is sort of par for the course. And it's been curious that the negative, truly hateful uh, uh, emails that have come in or been posted on various websites really have, are singularly inarticulate and largely dominated by profanities. Um, all of which find a way to be either racist or uh, misogynist. You know, I've been called things like, you know, 
pejoratively, I can tell you, um, menstrual discharge. And I didn't even know that was a pejorative. To you one, even to me. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I've accused of, you know, hanging out with wimpy, pathetic, white, liberal women. So it speaks to something that's going on there. And, and in fact, the article, uh, it's not at all anti-American. It's more like a love letter. It, it You know, when we have a family member uh, in trouble, the first step of an intervention is to hold the mirror to their face and show them how far they've, how far they've fallen. And that realization is always the first uh, step on the path of potential rehabilitation and regeneration. And, you know, it struck me that um, COVID was, was, you know, fundamentally um, a story about what had become of America. And the disease was revealing graphically that the idea of American exceptionalism lay in tatters, and it had laid in tatters for a long time before COVID. Pandemics always, or epidemics, always have a way of of uh, moving the wheel of history uh, in different ways. I mean, the Black Death, obviously, uh, in killing half of Europe's population uh, in the 14th century, um, uh, brought down the medieval order that had been in place for a thousand years. By contrast, the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919, which killed millions of people, including, incidentally, my grandfather, who, who according to family lore, although this seems medically um, unlikely, but family lore claims he walked out of the house in the morning and was dead by afternoon. But again, the Spanish flu didn't have this systemic impact because it happened in the wake of the Great War, and the whole world was kind of numb by death. Similarly, in the summer of Woodstock, if you can believe it, while half a million kids took drugs and swam around in the mud of that farmer's field, the Hong Kong flu killed 100,000 people. And in Berlin, they were storing corpses in, in subway stations for lack of room in the morgues. But again, we didn't have global media. We didn't have digital access to communication. And we weren't all flying around the world. In the 1960s, most people in Europe or in Canada or United States had never been in an airplane. You know, what COVID did is sort of, you know, unveiled the tatters of the American image. I mean, Americans woke up to realize that they're actually living in a failed state led by a dysfunctional government at the head of which was an individual who was literally recommending the use of bathroom disinfectants to treat a disease that he intellectually could not begin to understand. When you think of the healthcare workers, you know, waiting for emergency supplies of fundamental material from swabs to masks to arrive from uh, China, and the hinge of history opened to the Asian uh, century. And as an Irish Times correspondent said it so well, America has invoked all kinds of emotions uh, over the years, good and bad, loving and hateful, uh, but never, never the sentiment of pity. And suddenly the world was looking at America you know, as a failed state. And, and you know, the truth is that empires um, are born to die. Kingdoms are born to die. The 15th century belonged to the Portuguese, the 16th to the Spanish, the 17th to the Dutch, the 18th to the uh, French, the 19th, of course, to the British. And, you know, the British Empire reached its greatest geographical extent as late as 1935. You know, Brits in all the colonies were swirling their gin and tonics um, in the setting sun. But we now know, of course, that the empire was gone, bled white, bankrupt by the Great War, and the torch had passed to America. And again, the way to, to ask what's become of America is to look at w what it once was. On the eve of um, World War II, America was a demilitarized society. Uh, Portugal and Bulgaria had larger armies. And yet within three years, the Americans had 18 million men and women serving in uniform. The nation's industrial might, once harnessed to the cause of the liberation of Europe and the world, um, literally saved, literally saved civilization, that together with Russian blood. Uh, the Ford Motor Company produced more industrial output than the nation of Italy. For every four pounds of equipment the Japanese got to a soldier, America got two tons. Uh, Liberty ships were built, uh, spat out by the hour. The record for building a Liberty ship 
was four days, 29 hours and, and 17 minutes. B-24s with 1.5 million parts were assembled on assembly lines, uh, again, spat out by, by the hour. We, the industrial output was so extraordinary um, that we were able to, without thinking, send half a million Dodge trucks to the Russians, half a million radio sets, the troops that marched into Berlin from Russia, from the east, did so on boots, in many cases, made in America. And so in the wake of the war, with Europe in ashes, Japan prostrate, America with but 4% of the world's population controlled 50% of the world's economy, made 90% of the world's cars. And that incredible concentration of wealth allowed for a truce between labor and capital that gave us a weekend, gave us a working middle class, an era in which an individual, then a man for the most part, could support a family on his own, buy a house, buy a car, send his kids to good schools. And that became kind of the, the idea of America. Now, the, the truth is, when we look back in the 1950s, America was no perfect place by any means. But the economy really resembled Denmark as it does the America of today. I mean, marginal tax rates were 90%. That doesn't mean that the wealthy paid 90%, uh, but at least a symbol of, of what they were expected to give was, was out there. Uh, and, and the incredible golden age, as it said, of American capitalism lifted all boats with the tide. And then came this sort of two generations of, of globalization, which was celebrated with iconic intensity when every working man and woman in America just had to look up and know that it was nothing more than capital on the prowl in search of cheap labor. And as the factory jobs that made possible that dynamic working middle class and a, a relatively uneducated person could, could provide. I mean, it's not that long ago, you know, I'm 66. And when I graduated from high school here in British Columbia, lots of my friends made a conscious choice not to go to university uh, and waste, as they put it, five years, six years in education. They went to work for the unions and a union job paid a heck of a lot of money. But that world slowly disappeared. And even as that world disappeared, suddenly came into being this economic injustice, this extraordinary chasm, this discrepancy, whereby today 1% of Americans have $30 trillion of assets and the bottom half of Americans have more debt than assets. The three richest Americans, and everybody knows their names, have more wealth than the lower 160 million American citizens. And a, a nation that once sort of spat out fighter planes by the hour couldn't produce masks and, and swabs. A nation that defeated polio and smallpox and led the world in medical innovation was suddenly ruled by someone advocating the use of disinfectants and flaunting medical advice on the fundamental use of masks. A nation that once celebrated the freedom of information, the flow of, of, of knowledge. I mean, Franklin and Madison, Monroe, Jefferson, they all said that education was more important than Congress, that you, without knowledge, you couldn't have a democracy. And that, of course, has been eviscerated. America now ranks 45th in the world as a nation when it comes to press freedom. The great American myth of the shining city on the hill, you know, the huddled masses arriving at the door. Of course it was a myth, but myths, myths aren't just stories. And it's not whether they're true or not. They are the moral compass of a nation. They are the, the measure of the aspirations of a nation. And the myth of the Statue of Liberty and the huddled masses informed the American dream. It created the lodestone that was America. And now we have more of the American population favoring the building of a wall along the southern border than favoring support for the desperate mothers and children who arrived starving at that border. Starving at that border precisely because their own societies in Central America were disrupted by, uh, by, uh, by American adventures in the anti-communist crusade of the 1980s and by American consumption in boardrooms and bars across the country of cocaine, which has created the disruption as a drug moves through Central America. You know, this, this, is, this is a country that has turned its back, in a sense, on its fundamental founding. Freedom is defined as the individual's 
right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry. You know, by April of 2019, four months into the year, Americans had killed more of each other in handguns and gun violence than the Allies lost on June 6, 1944, on the landings at D-Day. When Americans go to the beaches or conventions or bars, flaunting, mocking the use of people who use masks, they think they're demonstrating some kind of freedom or strength, but they're actually demonstrating the weakness of the people who lack the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it. I think you're putting your finger on something that, that I, I've been mulling for a while and that I find fascinating, which is that the very things in the American psyche that, for me, made the U.S. fascinating and, and appealing and, and idolized in my teens and in my 20s, which is that sense of possibility of, of individual freedom and, and potential, is the exact same dynamic that now makes it makes me think that I, I couldn't possibly live there again. Well, I, I think that that is really, Isabel, that is such, that is such a brilliant comment, honestly, because I think it strikes to the very heart of the matter. First of all, I want to say I love America. Like you, I was drawn there in my youth. My career could never have happened in Canada. I married an American. I became a naturalized American. I raised my kids in the States. My father-in-law was nearly president of the United States. He turned down the vice presidency offered to him by Richard Nixon. My son-in-law is serving as an active officer on military duty overseas at the moment. So this piece I wrote was in no way anti-America. It, 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 on the contrary, the America that I revered was the America of Abraham Lincoln, of Walt Whitman and the Grateful Dead. But, but back to your point, you know, in the wake of World War II, America embraced the cult of the individual with kind of iconic intensity to the point where today... Not only is there a lack of a sense of community, many Americans don't even believe in the notion of society. And the consequences are, are all around them. Uh, if you look at the breakdown of the family, the high divorce rates said in the 1970s peaked out at 40, 45, 50%. The fact that the average um, American father spends 20 minutes only each day in direct communication with the child. The fact that by the time a American youth is 18, they've spent three years watching glass, watching video games or, or, or a, a laptop monitor, contributing to an obesity epidemic so severe that the Joint Chiefs of Staff have posted op-eds calling it a national security uh, crisis. Americans today consume two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs. The, the largest uh, cause of death for those under 50, believe it or not, is opioid addiction. And, and so the, these are the signs of not a healthy uh, society. Only 6% of American homes have grandparents and grandchildren beneath the same roof. You're not uniquely America, but we farm away our elders, the wise ones, if you will, into these horrible old folks' homes, which kind of tragically, but in a strange way, inevitably became the epicenters for the, this, this horrid contagion, you know. Um, uh, all these elders who are all by themselves, you know, uh, uh, because we had abandoned them, you know, that cult of the individual, which allows for the American dream, doesn't do so well when, when the collective society is facing a crisis. One of the, you know, um, critiques of the piece I wrote for Rolling Stone from Canadians has been, you know, that I'm somehow sugarcoating Canada. Well, that's not the case. I, the article is not really about Canada, and I, I, I'm certainly not suggesting Canada is some kind of perfect place. But that said, on July 30th of this summer, on a day that the Americans announced 59,629 new cases of COVID in all of British Columbia, where we have a concentrated metropolitan population, we're an Asian city in Vancouver, we're two hours north of Seattle, where the pandemic landed in America. We have dozens of flights coming in every day from China. We, I mean, logically, we should have been hit very hard. But on the day that the Americans announced 60,000 cases, in all of our hospitals, we had only five COVID patients. So something was working here. And one of the things that was working here was a social contract, an ongoing faith that individuals have in their country, in their institutions. You will never see a Canadian politician running against the government, because we know the government is who we are. 
I mean, it's, it's most kind of strangely schizophrenic notion that began really with Nixon and, and later Ronald Reagan, that somehow the U.S. federal government is your enemy when it's by definition, it's a shining expression or it should be of who you are as a democracy. And our healthcare system caters to the collective, not the individual, and certainly not the private investor who views every hospital bed as if a rental property. And, and in Canada, we are a social democracy, and meaning that, um, you know, we, 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 we don't really view wealth as a currency accumulated by the lucky few, bless them but rather by the strength of social relations and the bonds of reciprocity that connect everybody in common purpose. Social democracy is not communism light, as it's described in the United States. It's dynamic capitalism just seems to focus on every tier of this society. I use an allegory to try to explain to my American friends how it is different in Canada. And I say, just imagine the last time you went to the, the Safeway to get your groceries. When you go get your groceries in the States, there's a kind of economic class, educational, racial, social chasm between you and the checkout person that it's almost impossible to bridge. Now, you don't feel that when you go to a Safeway in Canada. You don't necessarily feel that the checkout person's your peer. You may have more or less wealth, more or less education, but fundamentally you feel that you can communicate because you are part of a wider community. And the reason for that is very simple. As a Canadian, you know that the checkout person is getting a living wage because of the unions. And you also know that their kids and yours probably go to the same local public school, which are funded not by local property taxes, which favor the communities of the affluent, but are funded by the state and block grants to give every kid an equitable chance to move ahead on the resources to do so through education. And of course, a third and critical uh, thread, if you will, is healthcare. And that checkout person knows that you know that they know that if their kids get sick, they will get exactly the same care as your kids, and indeed the kids of the prime minister. Now, those three strands woven together become the fabric of social democracy. You know, I tell a story when my mom was 85, 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, she got a headache. By one o'clock, she was in surgery with the top neurosurgeon in Western Canada, and she nearly died, but he saved her life. Uh, and my sister and I rushed out to the ICU to, to see her, and uh, she was recovering. And right beside her in the second bed in the unit was a young girl from Manitoba from a farm family, and the entire clan was surrounding this beautiful little girl in the bed. And, and I, I couldn't help but think... The girl had had the same condition as my mom, the same treatment, the same surgeon who had also saved her life. Now, my sister is a prominent lawyer, and I've done very well. We could have paid for that service to save our mother, but that family might well have faced a choice between bankruptcy and the well-being of their child. And in a social democracy, whether it's New Zealand or Australia or Canada or Denmark or Finland or Sweden, um, Norway, um, Great Britain for that matter, that's not a choice that we believe a family should face in a civilized society. Now, in Victoria, where the hospital was, the fanciest hotel is known as the Empress. It's one of the old Canadian Pacific Railway hotels, and it's now a Fairmont. Very fancy. And it has a rule, or it did then, that any family member of a Canadian in an ICU unit uh, got a free night in the hotel. So after we got kicked out of the ward by uh, the nurses all these fantastic Irish and Scottish and Filipino nurses. We all poured into our vehicles back to the uh, hotel, and we all went to the bar. And the family from Manitoba didn't drink because they're all uh, fundamentalist Christians. So I bought orange juice or apple juice or whatever they wanted all around, and my sister and I had a glass of beer or whatever it was, and we toasted. And we didn't toast the doctors that had saved our loved one's lives, although he was certainly in our minds, we didn't toast each other, but we toasted our country because it was our country and the, and, and the collective that had allowed that moment to happen, where, where two families from widely d distinct spectrums of the economic and social and educational spectrum could come together as one and realized that we were living in a nation that cared as much for that little girl as it cared for my mother and 
as much for my mother as that little girl. And it was a very, very beautiful moment uh, that you can imagine how emotional it was because, of course, our, our, our loved ones had survived, you know, because of our healthcare system. That's a beautiful story. You point out that the, the success of Canada in handling COVID-19 shows the, the strength of that social bond. At the same time, you do have countries with that social bond that have struggled with, with COVID-19, like, like Spain and France and Italy. There also seems to be a pattern where every country with a populist government has done terribly. If you combine the US and Brazil and Mexico and India and, and the UK, you have half of the world's death toll of COVID-19. So does COVID-19 show the failure of America, the failure of populism? Which is it? Well, I, th I think, I think, right. And again, I'm not trying to sugarcoat Canada by any means. We had some pretty severe uh, rates of COVID in Quebec, really by accident, because the, the spring school holidays in Quebec by, by terrible chance come two weeks early. So a lot of Quebecois families were with their kids down in Florida, traveling around. And, and so they brought the virus back. And so Quebec and Ontario had, had, had not catastrophic outbreaks, but, but they had outbreaks uh, worse than, say, the other provinces of Canada. And, and, but, but obviously, it really comes down to something very, very simple, biology. I mean, I mean, all those populist regimes that you just mentioned were, were with the possible exception of Spain and Italy. And to be fair to both Spain and Italy, these were the nations in Europe that were first slammed with this thing. I mean, I, I remember very clearly, we all do, in the beginnings of March, I was looking ahead. I was about, I came back from Columbia on March 3rd, and I was scheduled to go to Jordan on March 11th. I was scheduled to be in seven countries in, in those three months. And so I, I can remember very graphically watching the whole thing kind of fall apart as we all adapted to this new reality in, in, over the space of about three weeks, right? And every day brought new events and outcomes that would have been beyond imaginings a week before. So I think to be fair to Italy and Spain, in a sense, they, they're, they're, they got hammered by something. And I didn't include them in the, in the populist government. Yeah. But when you come to the other nations that you mentioned, Brazil or, or, or the United States or, or, or Boris, Boris as England, for that matter, what you see is this, this foolhardy, kind of macho denial of life, denial of, of biology. The virus doesn't care. It's 10,000 times smaller than a, than a, than a grain of salt. It, it, it thrives by not only co-opting our own fundamental biology and causing us to recreate it and not the healthy components of our own systems, but it also attacks the, the, the social fabric of our lives, the connections of community that are for the human as a social species with teeth and claws represent to the tiger. And so the chaos, in a sense, unleashed by the virus is exactly in evolutionary terms what the virus uh, has in mind, if you will. It, it, it thrives in conditions of, of poor sanitation, in conditions of close proximity. I mean, it's not an accident that the rates of morbidity and mortality have been so much higher amongst those who are either deemed to be essential workers, um, you know, the people that in, for many of our lives are kind of invisible, the people that are doing the basic sanitation work in the city and, and so on, uh, not just the healthcare workers, the bus drivers or the subway car drivers, et cetera. But, but the, the one thing you know about a virus is you, you have to move fast, you have to contain it, and you can only do so with, with draconian interventions. And every week you deny it, it spreads. And you just have to look at what happened around the world, particularly in, in the United States, when, when Trump, to the detriment of all, basically misled the nation at a very critical time in, 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 in the fate of all. And America is still suffering the consequences, coming up, up to... 186,000 dead in, in the United States, massive rates of mortality. And, and, and this is why the, 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 the idea that we don't need to wear masks is, is no brave gesture. It's a gesture of utter contempt for your fellow citizens. And societies that, that, that send people out in, in demonstrations against 
the restrictions that are necessary given to us by the top healthcare officials in the world. These people are not exercising freedom. They're, they're, when I say that Trump is not the cause of America's decline, obviously, but a, but a symptom of its descent, what I mean by that is that there's really no better measure of the decadence of a society than what happened in 2016 when over 62 million Americans uh, went to the polls and indulged themselves. I mean, they voted their hatreds, they voted their grievances. And I, I don't mean in the way that when people go to a to a, a voting booth, they don't have favorites or they don't they don't perhaps disdain the other side or whatever. But in this case, it was something else. It was people deliberately voting their indignation, knowing full well that the man they were electing had no credentials whatsoever for the office, save his willingness to validate their hatreds and target their enemies, real and imagined. I mean, if Abraham Lincoln asks for malice toward none and charity for all, this dark troll of a man seeks malice for everybody and charity for none. You know, if George Washington famously couldn't um, tell a lie, the current U.S. president wouldn't recognize the truth. And the really frightening scenario in terms of the next coming months is, the, is what's playing out right now. And as COVID rates begin a slow decline in the United States, it's setting up Trump to lay, to lay claim to the victory over COVID in his multiple distortions and to blame the Democrats for the collapse of the economy. And there's a, there was a horrible graphic in the New York Times this morning showing a photograph of a Biden rally and a Trump rally. And the Trump rally looked like the good old days, bunting and colors and red and packed people and nobody's social distancing, not a mask in sight. And this was a rally that occurred yesterday. And then you had the Biden rally where the president, the nominee is in a mask. Everyone's in a mask. There are no people around. Everybody's social distancing. And the, the terrible thing is that Biden, of course, is doing the proper and prudent thing, setting the correct example as we know it to be. Trump is betraying the people in his mendacity. And yet the optics are one looks optimistic and positive. The other looks retreating and, and cowering kind of. And I'm very much afraid that that, that that false narrative will be exploited by the Republicans to achieve the inconceivable, the unimaginable the possible re-election of this dark troll of an individual. And I think if that happens, you know, it's one thing when an aberration of history occurs, this quirky moment when people were uh, tired of uh, the Clintons or, or felt uh, didn't trust Hillary or whatever the excuses were, didn't like that she'd been kind of coronated um, as a po and so on, or the Sanders people disillusioned, whatever it was. People could defend America for making that mistake because they didn't. Re maybe we didn't really know what Trump was going to be. I mean, no one could imagine that the power the, of, of the legacy of the office, that the aura of the office, would not in some way temper the character of whoever held that office. No one could have envisioned in this for a second what Trump has actually done across the board in every single engagement. But if America turns around and says, that's what we want, that's what we're going to elect, knowing full well what is at stake and who he, in fact, is, well, then they're making a choice. And in the same way that I, I, I would say those who want to build a border, a, a, a wall along the Mexican border, aren't only misguided and, and foolish uh, it, to believe that that's going to have an impact on immigration whatsoever. I would say they're treasonous because what is the definition of treason? It's when you initiate processes that violate and, and eviscerate and the very values upon which your nation is founded. It's not flag draped patriotism that is the definition of, of, of the power of ideas. It, 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 it's a constitution. It's what America says. It's a right to burn that flag, I would say, that is the most extraordinary expression of American democracy. And democracy is so fragile. And one of the things that is, is disturbing about this cult of the individual 
is again, looking back at this from the anthropological perspective, culture is not trivial. Culture is not decorative. It's not the songs we sing. It's not the flags we wave. It's not the prayers we utter. It's not even the, 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 it's not the surface. What, what culture is in every society, in every place in the world, is a body of moral and ethical values that we wrap around each individual human being to keep at bay the barbaric heart that history tells us lies within every human. It's culture that allows us to make sense out of sensation, to find order and meaning in the universe, to do what Lincoln said, seek always the better angels of our nature. And when that veneer of, of civilization is torn, when, when the raw heart of the beast, if you will, is allowed to emerge, that's when you have nations that once gave us Mozart and Schiller and Goethe suddenly resonating with the sound of jackboots in the street. Now, I'm not suggesting that America is on the way of Nazi Germany, but they're pretty daunting images when you see white militia, self-appointed militia, stringing AK-47s or, or, or semi-automatic weapons or of one sort or another over their shoulders and their fatigues and marching into government legislatures. I mean, can you imagine if a group of black men similarly dressed to intimidate with massive weaponry like that, weaponry conceived only to kill people, were to march into the government buildings in any place in America, they would be shot down in seconds. They never would get that close. They would never get that close. So you're seeing, I mean, one of the things that's going on in America that is so haunting is the, is the and this is also being driven by social media, where, where the truth is what you want it to be. I mean, the, the, the complete distortion in the media between two sides of, the, of, the, of reality from the kind of the, this, the sentimental indignation of CNN on the one hand and the violent vitriolic lies and distortions of Fox News on the other. And literally, in the same way that Facebook, uh, the algorithms of Facebook cause you to cluster around like-minded ideas, like-minded people, people become lost in these bubbles of, of, of isolation, and, and their realities become completely different. I remember flying around the world on a private jet trip for the National Geographic, a very expensive trip, for the passengers, I was guest lecturer. I've done that many times for them. And, and generally the passengers are uh, very wealthy, of course, but also tend to be Republicans, right? And uh, I remember doing it during one of the election campaigns, it was when Romney was running, and they were so 100% convinced that Romney would have to win because all they had ever watched was Fox News. And, uh, and later on, it came to such a shock to them that, that he didn't win. Because neither side lets the air of the other side into its room. And the same thing happened in 2016. It was it was a shocker to to realize that there was there was that that huge chunk of the American population that a lot of people on the left had never imagined. That's right. And 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 again again the, the first impulse of the left was to demonize those people and 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 dismiss them as being stupid, which only exasperated their the divide because. A lot of what was going on was, was, was people just fed up with unfairness. I mean, when people say, well, what does America have to do to come together? It, it seems to me that November is just an election. I mean, it's an important election, obviously, but it's not going to heal the divide. If Biden, even if Biden wins resoundingly, there will still be 50 to 60 million people who are on that other side who will believe and Trump will fan the flames of this that the election was stolen from them. And, and Trump will do everything he can for his personal gain to maintain that, that, that rabid following that he, that he has and he lives upon. I'm, so I'm, the, only, the, only thing that will, the only thing that's going to heal America is to heal America. Somehow this chasm between those who have and those who have little, the, the, this chasm of opportunity between those who have managed to go to university and those who haven't, the chasm of opportunity between those who have been abandoned in the, uh, as factories close and, and, and become automated, uh, something has to be done to give that cohort a sense of integration, a sense of belonging, a, a sense of being part of uh, an America that's not measured simply by flag wrap patriotism at, at, a, at, a, at a rally 
but is real, where social and racial justice become one and the same. I mean, one of the things that I, that I found so haunting in the critiques that have come in these, of, of my piece in Rolling Stone is that they have been so singularly inarticulate. Even those who can read between the lines who probably are educated people, when they turn their vitriol on, all they can do is spew obscenities. Uh, and the obscenities all dance around misogyny and, and, and racism. The article, for example, says very little to it, to it about women. It's not at all about women's aspirations one way or another. And yet the number of, of comments that have managed to drag in, in vicious, angry, hateful, it, remind, it, it kind of reminds me of the kind of hate that poor whites in the South expressed for black people in, in the early days of the civil rights movement. I mean, because the economic injustices in the South were so dramatic, the only thing poor white people had in their lives was that they weren't black. And that accounts for how much, how viciously the, the, the white lower class population turned to, on, on, on blacks in defense of segregation, for example. Yeah, there there are buttons like that that, that you can just push. Uh, I've noticed that as well in, in my social media activity. I can I can write about things that are happening in Europe, not at all about America. You never say the word immigrant or women or anything like that, and and somehow it comes back to the wall from from some of my American followers. You mentioned the election, and that's uh, I've got just one two final questions on on that theme of of the end of the American century. If there is a Biden administration. One can hope that COVID will be handled better, but is there an off-ramp to this idea of the end of the American century, or is it is it done? Um, well, I, I I I am not looking forward to the end of the American century. It's certainly no time to gloat, nothing to celebrate. Um, you know, if indeed the 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 hinge of history does open to an Asian century dominated by China with its treatment of ethnicities, its suppression of democracy, its, its social crediting scores that, 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 that force fidelity to the orthodoxy of the state. I mean, the litany goes on and on. The, the, the military zeal, the, the consumption of resources. We will be very nostalgic for the best years of the American century. I, I have always felt that, that at the end of the day, for all of its follies and for all of its uh, egregious foreign adventures for all of its versions of democracy, for all of its its catering to dictatorships, which has colored the years of the Cold War. There is always a kernel of hope in the American dream. I was inspired by it. Many people around the world have been inspired by it. Millions of people have been inspired by it. And one hopes that that flame of hope will never be extinguished. But again, as an observer, you you have to write about what is, not what a world you'd like to be. And it's hard when I when I look at all these indi indicators. It's hard, and knowing the trajectory of history, at least over the last six seven hundred years, it's hard to see a way for America to reclaim itself. I mean, just think about this. Since 2000, America has spent $6 trillion on foreign military adventures that have not done much for anybody, except brought misery to many. During those years, China, since the 1970s, in fact, has never gone to war. America, since the 1970s, has never been at peace, whereas China built its infrastructure, pouring more cement every three years since 2000 than the Americans did in the entire 20th century, America has allowed its infrastructure, both its physical infrastructure and its social infrastructure to erode. I mean, you fly into an American airport and you wonder you're, you're in the third world. Look at a sporting event in the 1940s, Yankee Stadium, and you will be hard pressed to see anybody in the crowd who is overweight. Look at a sporting event today in America, it's hard You'd be hard pressed to find someone who's not overweight, indeed, if not clinically obese. Well, I mean, these these don't mean the end of an era, but they're all symptoms of some greater 
challenge. I remember, Isabel, when my youngest daughter went to a very posh um, private school in Washington, and, and it was very intense academically, and she had to study the fall of the Roman Empire. And I was sitting with her on the sofa one day, quizzing her for her upcoming test. And I felt like Bill Murray in that movie Groundhog Day, that scene where he's with Annie McDowell and, and, and she's ticking off all the things that she loves in a man that he already knows about. So he's going, moi, moi, check, check, check. Well, as I went through the sort of the 40 reasons or whatever it was that Raina had to learn as to, as to be this, the, the symptoms of the fall of the great Roman Empire, I, I really felt like Bill Murray. I was going, thinking of America, check. Check unnecessary foreign adventures, poor fiscal policies, internal corruption and decadence. I mean, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. And and uh, so I wouldn't. No one would rather be wrong in in suggesting that this COVID epidemic is a symptom of the unraveling of America. But I would challenge anyone to 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 provide a, a solid, well thought out essay as to why it's not. And indeed, Rolling Stone has kind of asked me to do that in a follow-up article. So I might just take the complete opposite tack in a following-up article and try to find all the reasons for hope in the future of America. Oh, I'd love to read that. I'm curious to see if you you can convince yourself (laughs) and and the rest of us. That'd be be real interesting. None none of what I wrote in this piece for Rolling Stone reflects deep-seated beliefs of mine. In other words, it's not a polemic. It's not an argument I'm trying to make. It's not a, it wasn't an opportunity sort of to unleash on the world some passionate thesis that I've had for years. No, it was just a, a simple moment of reflection at the height of the COVID crisis when we were all asking ourselves what is in fact becoming of the world. And none of the ideas in that Rolling Stone piece had I really thought of until I sat down to write it. So in that sense, it, it, it reflects just a set of observations through the anthropological lens. And those observations are open to discussion. They're open to uh, crit- criticism. They're open to be challenged. But you can't challenge them by just sort of dismissing the author as with some obscenity. And if that's the best you can do, it's kind of suggesting that the arguments are um, hitting home and uh, may just be valid. And in fact, in its in its popularity, and I I, I, no, I mean, found it through social media as well, shared by an American friend, and I and all the comments were Americans who who recognized something in it. In yeah, I mean the vast like ma- it, they- <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean the, the the vast majority of responses I should stress are 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 from people around the world and from Americans who who express great sadness about the piece, not because they think that it's negative about the country in a gratuitous way, but because they recognize in the, in the description of what's become of America, a reality that they've been living and recognizing, knowing, and the piece in some sense just pulls everything together in a very succinct way. I mean, this is sort of the, the, the job of, 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 of a scholar or a writer, a storyteller. I mean, I do the same thing in my new book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. I, I try to show the world the truth of Columbia through the metaphor of its major river, the Magdalena, the Mississippi of Colombia. And, and there, there are some parallels there in the sense that, you know, Columbia has been torn asunder uh, by war for 50 years, a war, incidentally, that would not have lasted a day had it not been for the um, profits of the cocaine trade. And the, indeed, the, 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 the blood of the 220,000 Colombians killed, the, the agonies of the 7 million displaced from their homes really uh, lie on the shoulders of every person in every European and North American capital who has ever used illicit cocaine and, and the governments that have facilitated the trade in the black market by making the drug illegal while doing nothing to really curb its distribution. And, and, and yet one of the things that happens when countries are truly torn is what they come together as Columbia, in the world's falling apart, but Columbia is falling together. And they come together when the people themselves become just exhausted of conflict. Think South Africa, think Ireland. And, and Columbia is like that. The last year of, of, of war, the FARC were down to about 6,000 cadre, mostly teenagers looking for a meal. 
Uh, and yet the FARC made $600 million from cocaine that year. So you, you give me the Kensington Boy Scouts in London and 600 million US dollars, and I can wreak havoc in Southern India, uh, England. And yet three, two schoolboys in Bogota started a social media campaign that just said, no mas FARC, no more FARC. And within weeks, they had 2 million people marching in the streets of Bogota. And so, you know, the great hope for America, I think, is when, when people wake up, probably in the wake of the election in November, and, and hopefully a victory by Biden will, will, will give people a time to breathe. I mean, everybody knows that Biden, just because of his age, is a kind of caretaker president. I mean, he's he probably going to be one term just because of his mortality. But he, he's gonna, he's, he is like kind of the benign grandfather that the country needs. I mean, the truth is Joe Biden is a decent guy. He was a very good friend of my father-in-law's, even though my father-in-law was a Republican. No one says a bad word about Joe Biden. And I think what you saw in the, in the Democratic convention really sincerely expressed the, the sense that Biden may not be a perfect individual, a perfect leader, a, a perfect politician, but nobody could ever argue that he's not a decent, kind, generous thoughtful and, and loving individual. And God knows that's what the country needs. And maybe if that happens, maybe he's got the ability to reach out. And, and, and it will be when the vast majority of Americans, I'd like to think there's a majority of Americans who want this division to be behind them. If there's not, if there's not the collective will to reach out um, to fellow Americans to recognize that, that race has been the curse of America since its founding. That the country is not just a white country, it's a white and brown and black and blue and yellow and pink and red country. It's every color of the rainbow. If people get to the point where they want that dream of America more than they want to indulge their hatreds of each other, that will be the key to the recovery and, 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 and perhaps even the resurrection of another century of America influence and dominance in the world. Well, here's hoping. I think, uh, I think a, a more together America is something that, that we would all benefit from wherever we are in the world. Thank you so much for this conversation. If people want to follow your work, I know you're not very much a social media person, but you can tell us the name of your book again that, that got well, blasted by COVID. <laughs> Magdalena River of Dreams, and it's, uh, it's been described as a love letter to Columbia, and uh, Columbia, a place where heaven and earth comes together on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. It is not a place of violence and drugs. It's a, a land of colores y cariño, colors and love, and uh, it, it's without doubt the most interesting nation in the Americas. Thank you. We'll make sure that uh, people read that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Isabel. Take care. All right, take care.